All right, it's uh, my privilege. I'm excited to have the opportunity to once again um, kick off uh, a new round of Men's Roundtable. I feel very well equipped for Men's Roundtable. I realize you got to have gear. You got to be geared up, right? So I got my knife, and that's a real knife, boys. That's woven carbon fiber. I don't know if you can see it on the video. My kids have bought me that at a gun show. If your son's by you. $200 knife with carbon fiber at a gun show. You feel manly when you carry it, so I got that. But I have to offset that because I realized when I was over here, just when I was getting ready to come up and talk, I was like, make sure you got your reading glasses. I have reading glasses, and if I have my reading glasses on, I'd be able to see on the side of it, it says Marilyn Monroe. So somehow, I got these Marilyn Monroe reading glasses that are in my pocket. So just balancing out my testosterone and my estrogen as we get started this morning. When we uh, continue to talk about, it's, it's interesting, you'll see in the scriptures where in the letters, uh, the writers will sometimes get weary, saying, I'm saying the same thing over again to you. And that is one of the dangers of having a long-term teaching ministry is you say the same things over and over again. And then as you get old, you realize I'm telling the same stories over and over again and I'm always comforted when I look out and I see new faces. Um, and with our multiple congregations now, I know there are people there who haven't heard some of this. So some of you will have to endure some old stories quite possibly. I may not remember. Um, but the reason we keep coming back to uh, some of these things over and over again is because we constantly have to remind ourselves of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus in the core areas. I mean, it's like Mr. Miyagi teaching Ralph Macchio, right, who never beat up anyone, let's just all acknowledge. And if you don't know who Ralph Macchio is, shame on you, you can't be an American. But Mr. Miyagi is teaching him, and it's not how much karate you know, but it's how good your karate is. So paint the fence, wax on, wax off, scrub the floor. You can get a lot done with all of that, as he demonstrated in the movie, right? And now I just saw that Amazon or Netflix is relaunching a TV series um, on the Karate Kid with Johnny and whatever Ralph's name was when they were, Daniel, right, when they were growing up. It's pretty lame. But I'm going to watch it because I have to. But it's, but it's how good. There are a few simple, basic things that we have to keep coming back to and we have to keep reminding ourselves. And one of the things that I realize is that as you enter new seasons of your life, you find yourself doing some of the same things over and over again. I was actually scheduled for the teaching schedule this past weekend um, to be preaching. And, um, and I realized that there was some areas of leadership, because Rachel and I had gotten engaged. You think everything, you've raised your kids, your kids are out of the home, you're empty nesting, although that's not really true, because then other people come live with you, and your children come back and live with you. So it's just boomeranging. But you think, my life's getting simpler, things are going to get simpler, and then we're going to have all this energy to go do all these other things. And, and what I realized is that as our home has gotten emptier, I have just worked harder, I have not paid attention as closely to maintaining oneness in our marriage, and we have some decisions that we are on the wrong side. There's some things that were real clear to me, and I'd say, well, this is obviously true, and Rachel's like, that's absolutely ridiculous. So like, oh, okay. So I got work to do. This is my responsibility. And at first, I got frustrated, 
and wanted to just kind of argue with her. What's wrong with your thinking, woman? This is obvious. And then I realized that's not a good strategy. That negatively impacts your marital intimacy, I would tell you, if you don't know that. So I was like, I'm going to have to actually go engage this. Okay, so what is reject passivity? So I had to go to my boss, Matt Williams, and say, hey, I can't teach that weekend. Rich has got spring break. I need spring break. We got to go get some time. We got to connect. So I went, and she wanted her kayaks, even though the place we were going had kayaks. I striped the kayaks on top of the car. We drove three hours away, and we paddled around in salt water, brackish water, flat water paddling. Uh, that's my speed. And um, looked at birds and had conversations. Because I realized I have not been engaging this issue. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm the one who teaches people to reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expectation of God's reward. Got to be reminded over and over again. And so for us, we have to come back to some of the same things. So this is what I would say to you. If we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to have influence, and that's the word that I would want you to have in your mind, is to have influence with your sons and daughters. Because many of you expect to have control because you don't have children yet. I just want you to know. You ain't never going to have control. But when they're young, you can have the illusion of control over a lot of things. But ultimately, as a man, what is gold for you is influence. And so the question is going to be, do I have influence? And your influence with adult children in particular. And most of your relationship with your children is going to be when they are adults. That is the great majority of your relationship. The time that they actually need you physically is a very small percentage of their time unless they have some constitutional weakness or frailty that causes them to be more physical to physically dependent on you. There are a lot of people who have that. But generally speaking, most of your relationship is going to be with adults, and you are only relevant insofar as you have influence. And you only have influence insofar as you are personally powerful and wise. That's the truth. And if you're not relevant to the complex problems that are going to be facing their life, then you're not relevant. They're going to call somebody else. And they will endure you on the holidays, but they will call other people to get what they need. And so for us, our ability, one of the things in the scriptures give us a good model of this, because in the scriptures when we look at Who's supposed to be an authority in the local church? It's not people who are uber gifted. It's people whose life is full of wisdom. They have mastery over themselves. They are led by the Holy Spirit and not by their own impulses. They have character. They have integrity. I was talking with a young man the other day, and I was asking him just in preparation for, for all of this about his dad. And he's in a good relationship with his dad. And he's carrying a, this young man's carrying a significant amount of weight. And I just asked him, I said, you know, what, what was a big deal for you? He said, my dad was really trying to do the things that he said he was trying to do. He said, he didn't do it perfectly. He said, but when I look back on it, the reason why I love and respect my dad and I listen to my dad is because he was for real. He was really trying to do the things that he said he was trying to do. His public life matched his private life. Not perfectly, but with integrity. Who he was out there was who he was in here. And so when we're going to think about all of that, 
down the road of parenting, we're going to get there to influencing sons and influencing daughters, we have to track back to this most basic thing of, of who we are because all of that's got a flood of who we are. If we want to think about godly manhood, Jesus has a summary of godly manhood. I think you have this in your notes. A teacher, they were always trying to stump Jesus. teacher comes to Jesus, Matthew 22, and he says, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in all the law of Moses? So trying to get him to say something that they could then pick him apart on. And Jesus says, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, or is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So here's what we could say is that the idea here that Jesus is getting to is that all the commands of God flow out of our relationship with him. And do we love him supremely and absolutely? And then do we love those around us? So that's it. That's what godliness looks like. It's not propositional. It's not keeping a rule here, keeping a rule there. But it's do I love? Am I in a right kind of relationship with God? Is he in the proper place in my life? And then am I in a proper relationship where I'm loving others appropriately and I'm engaging them in the right kind of relationship around me? But here's the question that I would ask us more particularly. That would be true for any man and for any woman. But can we get a little clearer about some of the common failures and some of the common callings that we have as a man. What is a more distinctive way to think about this? What's a good grid that we could run it through? So what does it look like for a man in a very foundational way to love God and to love his neighbor? And that's where we come back to this language that we've used over and over again. And I would encourage you, go in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to do all of this, but we are going to take a look at it. In Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, we have the beginning of all things in terms of space and time, human history, where God has entered in and he's created people and he's ordering things the way he wants them to be ordered. And there's an order to that creation and there's some priorities that are established from the very beginning. And in Genesis chapter 2, what you see, and I'll just summarize Genesis 2, the world has been created, but it is not complete and fruitful. And so what God does is he takes some of the dust of the earth, and this is real important for us as men to understand, he takes the dust of the earth and he fashions that into a man. And then there's this intimate language. He takes the, the stuff of the earth that he had fashioned into a man and he presses it to his lips and he breathes into the man, and the man becomes a living soul. He becomes a living being. So the, the man is created from the earth, and we see in the text he's created for the earth because the earth was not fruitful. And in order to be fruitful and in order to make the progress, God created the earth with potential, but that potential was not realized, that's what it means for it to have potential, is there was still more glory yet to be revealed, a greater fruitfulness to be experienced. And God's first solution for that to happen was he made a man out of the same stuff of the earth. So the earth is not fruitful. God's solution for that, at least in part, was for him to create a man. 
And then he plants a garden, he gives him a job, he gives him a job description, he gives him a standard of righteousness, he says, this is how you trust me and live in relationship with me, do this, make the world a better place, um, work it, uh, be fruitful, multiply, don't eat this, eat this, this is how you ought to live. And so the man's put there and he begins to go to work. But as he goes to work, the man begins to realize he does not have one to come alongside him and help him in that work. And so God causes him to fall asleep, and God takes from him, even as God took from the earth that was unfruitful and fashioned a man, God takes from the man who was not fruitful in the sense that he wanted him to be fruitful, and he fashioned a woman, and he brings the woman to the man. The order is important. For you to understand who you are as a man and then how you're going to have to love other people and how you got to live in this world and how you're going to have to honor God in this world, you got to understand this. The rationale for your creation and that first story is instructive for us. So all of that happens, and at the end, the highlight of all of that is, at the end of it, now the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was nothing between them and nothing with God. They were fully known. They were fully transparent. They had no reason to hide. They were in a good world. They had good work to do. They understood one another. Everything worked the way it was supposed to work. But then in Genesis 3, we get this beginning of failure. And so I am going to read some of this, and this is the way the story goes. And it's a fantastic story. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now notice, first of all, that the serpent goes to the woman. God created the man the man is responsible. The woman is given to the man to help the man, to come alongside him. That's the language of Azair that we talk about, one who comes alongside and brings help, strength, capacity, all of that. So, but the serpent reverses that. He goes to the woman. Did God really say this? And he questions the command that God had given to the man. The woman says, of course, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, it's only the fruit of one tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said, you, will, <clears throat> you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And so she took some of the fruit, and she ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open. They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid. They hid from the Lord God. But then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walk in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave to me. You, <clears throat> it's the woman you gave me. She gave me fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. 
And then God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will crush his heel. <clears throat> you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And then to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. Notice how the curse falls out according to the sphere of their responsibility in creation. Eve's created to come alongside, help the man be fruitful, connect with him and his cause, conflict there. Adam's created from the earth for the earth, curse is in that sphere. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it, but it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. And so there's this tragic idea that God created this dust and ennobled it, and then at the end, because of Adam's failure... He's going to go back to being, to losing this special thing that God had done to him. This dust that had been ennobled is now is, is going to disintegrate again. Now that's the Bible's picture of the tragedy, of the glory and the tragedy of our humanity. And what you have to do is you have to make sure that you know how, right now, where you are in 21st century North America, to anchor yourself in that story and find yourself in that story. Because this, the world will try to paint another story for you. The world will try to tell you that something else is going on. It's living out another narrative that will come and will go. But this narrative is the one, this story is the one that can actually tell you who you are. This is the story that can actually tell you how to be the kind of man that God wants you to be. And so we cannot neglect it. So let's look at it for just a minute. Let's see the tragedy. Let's see the negative side of it. Adam is created and he's put in charge. But then when we find in Genesis 3... That order is being challenged, and you're listening to it, and you're thinking, what's going on? Adam is nowhere to be found. And you think, maybe he's off working, right? Brother's got to work. Eve's working in one corner, he's working in another corner. But then you get to the critical moment where Eve is actually making the fatal decision to take the fruit, to eat the fruit, and you realize, where is Adam? Where is he in the story? She took the fruit and she ate it and she gave it to her husband who was with her. So he is present, but he's passive. He's there, but he's irrelevant. Makes me think of Stranger Things. I don't know if any of y'all have ever watched Stranger Things. I'm a Stranger Things fan, all right? If you don't get it, then that's fine. Don't judge me. But I'm a Stranger Things fan. Grew up with all those Spielberg movies of the 80s and it's kind of an homage to all of that. So I'm watching Stranger Things and how the father is so irrelevant. So irrelevant. In our popular media, that's usually the way it goes. The dad is either an abuser or he's completely irrelevant. He's there, but he's not engaged. 
Where does that story come from? It comes from this. That is a faint echo in our culture of our fundamental problem. Is the present man who is present physically, but he is not engaged while the tragedy is unfolding. He's, as people say about Nero, he fiddled while Rome burned. He's responsible, he is in charge, but he is not engaged. He is distracted, he's doing something else. That's what we see from Adam. We don't know all of what was going on, but what we do see is that he embraces passivity. That's what Adam does. He's absent from the action. And I would ask you this question. Are you in your work environment or in your home? Present, but not really relevant for the action, for the real things that are being challenged. Do you have a calculated aloofness where you see something that's going on that's kind of complex? For me, I remember a season we were going through when my first son was getting into the early stages of adolescence. We'll talk about more about this kind of stuff later. But he's in the early stages of adolescence. And he began to have a new kind of conflict with his mother. Who grew up with, um, in a female-dominated home. Her dad worked a lot. Loved her, provided for her, but was not emotionally engaged. Her mom ran the show at home. And um, was uh, most of his leadership energy went there. And most of her leadership energy went to home. And she only had a sister. So she, my wife is blessed or cursed, depending on how you look at it, to live in a man factory, all right? So she grew up in a woman factory. She's living in a man factory. And when the first boy is really transitioning into manhood, I would come home from work, and they would just be completely at one another. And so I thought I was doing a good job because I was defending my wife. So I'm engaged in defending my wife. And then while I'm in the process of defending my wife, you know what I realized? She was wrong. And I was like, this is not good. Because I'm, I'm wearing him out because, like, that doesn't require a lot of leadership energy for me, for any of you who know me, to, like, overreact emotionally and lay it down. I was kind of born for that, right? I blow stuff up just so I have chaos to be in the middle of because then it clarifies my life for me. It's like, oh, everything's broken. You do this, you do this, you do that. Like, that makes, that's the world that makes sense to me, Right? So like we get something up and going well at work, like we got to get Bill away from it because he'll get bored and blow it up because he doesn't know what to do because he doesn't know how to manage anybody. You just got to make yourself relevant. So I'm blowing it up, doing what I do, and I got in the middle of it, and I was like, no, nah, she's wrong. He's actually the victim in all of this. So I remember, this is really, this is, I remember where I was sitting. I remember what his face looked like, sweet Foster. His face looked like while I was talking to him, and I was like, Oh, crap. Because now I got to go deal with her. And I don't know how she's wrong. And I know she's not entirely wrong. But I know that the problem here, she is at the core of the problem. And she's not trying to be at the core of the problem. She just is. So, like, I won't have to go figure this out. And it was one of the most lonely moments of my marriage, which turned into the six most loneliest months of my marriage, because my first shirt shot at having that con- conversation was not done well. It involved tribal peoples and rites of passage in pagan tribes, which my wife pointed out to me real quickly. Did not go well. Affected 
Marital intimacy affected our ability to talk about all kinds of things, led to more conflict and sustained conflict that we had had up to any point in our marriage. Because what I had to do to some degree was pry that boy out of her hands so that he could be a man and have a healthy relationship with her one day in the future. Which by the grace of God he does now. Called her on the phone last night from Atlanta on his way home from work. He's catching up. But that had to happen. Without men's round table, I wouldn't have known that that had to happen. But there is, there was, I was being passive while I was disciplining him because I wasn't, for a while, I wasn't really engaging the real issue. I was just doing what came naturally to me. Passivity is a failure to love God and our neighbor, and that's what happened here. Adam did not take the designed role that was laid out for him, and as a result of that, his wife, God's purposes, and every subsequent generation has suffered. All the ills that we know spring from the fountainhead of a man who was present but irrelevant, who was not willing to engage the complexity of an issue that he had not confronted before, and he wasn't sure what to do, and so he did nothing. He waited and allowed her to lead the way, allowed her to take the hit, and then he followed her in that because it didn't seem like things had come apart right away. I mean, what was he going to do? See if she died and then decide if she doesn't die, whatever death is, if it doesn't happen to her, everything still seems to be fine. All right, now I'll do it. That's his failure. He rejects responsibility. The garden had been given to him. The job was given to him. The commands were given to him. The woman was given to him. He looked over the whole earth and he couldn't find one being who corresponded to him, who was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. She was given to him. And he rejected his responsibility for her. So he embraced passivity and he rejected responsibility. He was the head. That's just the way God made it. He was in charge. That's just the way God made it. It's not be in charge. We see this in the New Testament where you'll see the command, the husband is the head of the wife. That is not a command. It's a statement of fact. It's a statement of fact, not a command. Paul was not saying in Ephesians chapter 5, go, husbands go be the head. He's saying you are the head of the wife. And so you're either the head of your wife in a sense of you're owning that responsibility or you're the head and you're rejecting that responsibility. Either way, you're still the head. It's not a command. It's a description of how God has created things. And that's the thing that happens with Adam. He is the head, but he doesn't own that responsibility. How does he not own that responsibility? He hides in fear. I always wonder, it's become a, a new thing for me, and especially as we see in Genesis 3.15, and we see what Jesus is going to come and do. I always wonder what would have happened if as soon as the serpent began to speak contrary to the command of God, if Adam had just snatched him up by the mouth, popped him over the head and said, shut up, man. That's not true. God told me this. That would be interesting. You had this big, you ever watch, some of y'all remember Mutual of Omaha? You remember that? Marlon Parkins, right? And he had this dude that was with him, Jim. And so Marlon would be off narrating, narrating in the background. He's this old white-headed guy. 
And I mean, nothing against being old and white-headed. He was smart. He got Jim to go wrestle the anaconda. And so Marlon would be in the background, and Jim, he would be like, wow, Jim wrestles the wild anaconda. And he's just real calm and talking, and Jim is in the background dressed in safari gear. He's like rolling around in the water with this big snake. This is back before TV was politically correct. We were still killing animals and stuff, right? I mean, animals were harmed in the filming of that, I'm sure. And so, so Jim's like in the background wrestling the anaconda. And Marlon is narrating. And I always wonder what, you know, like Adam is in the background kind of narrating this is what's going on. What if he had been Jim? And he had grabbed the snake and contended and said, no, this is not true. God told me this. This is the garden that he gave to me. This is the woman he gave to me. You're going to deal with me. You're not going to deal with her. I was there. I heard what he said. I've got this. Eve, I love you, babe. This is my job. What if that had happened? But he doesn't do that. He hides. He shrinks back in fear. And then at the end, you find him hiding in expectation of condemnation. So we have Adam, the first Adam, in the garden, embracing passivity, rejecting responsibility, hiding in fear, and then hiding in the garden, expecting condemnation from God. So he's turned away, he's back, he's stepping back, he's not engaged. And he's in the world that God entrusted to him. He's the king of this world. He is the defender at this point of this world that is under threat from an evil that hates God and rejects God. It is his responsibility to own the cause, to own the cause of God, to own the cause of his wife. That is what it means for a man to love. But he doesn't. He stays in the background. So that gives us an image of what that failure might look like. Now let's, let's try to get in our head a positive example of what it might look like. And I have a couple of passages of Scripture for you. I think they're in your notes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There's this kind of cryptic quote in Genesis 3, 15, where God is cursing the serpent, and while God is cursing the serpent, he just makes this statement. He's like, things are not going to go well for you. You think you've won today and you have ruined these things, but here's what I want you to know. And this is, as you read the rest of the Bible, you see this, is that even though this did not go well today, I'm going to take this and I'm going to make it go well, and I'm going to destroy you through these people that you have destroyed today. So that's, that's what God is doing. It's a little difficult to understand at the time, but as you see the story play out, that's clearly what God is doing. And so within the curse on the serpent, God makes this statement. He says, he, talking about the seed of the woman, so this woman that sinned and is going to die is going to become a source of life for others, and from her is going to come one who will crush your head, or he will strike your head. He is going to stomp on your head. And you'll strike his heel. He's going to be wounded, but he's going to deal with you. So you, you can get over being bitten on the heel. You're not going to get over having your head crushed. So that's an interesting statement. And then in Romans chapter 5, we've got this kind of fuller idea where Jesus is being talked about, who is called in, an, in, a, in here, in Paul's writings, he's called the second Adam. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. 
Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So, first of all, let's just take these ideas. First of all, Christ, not that this was a temptation for him in a real sense, but he rejects passivity. He comes, he engages. We studied Philippians 2 not that long ago as a church. He leaves. He does not regard the position that he has as something to hang on to for his own benefit, but he leaves that position and empties himself, and he takes the form of a servant. He embraces um, his responsibilities. He rejects. He doesn't stand in the background. He's the opposite of Adam, who is present but not relevant. He rejects that temptation. He rejects that option, and he comes. You see that? There in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5, Christ came. He entered in. And it's the same way for us, is that what we are going to have to do is we're going to have to enter in. And what we can know, I'll go ahead and tell you, how did it end for Jesus when he entered in? How'd that go? Good? I mean, ultimately good now. He's the king of the universe. Matt just made a point about this. He's enthroned. But the pathway to his being enthroned and being in charge led through humbling himself, feeling alone, suffering, not being understood, being opposed once people started to understand what he was actually saying and doing. And the more he actually helped people and demonstrated who he was, so he raises Lazarus from the dead and all the religious leaders, their response to that is, okay, now we really got to kill him. If he can raise people from the dead, we got to kill him. He's too dangerous. Which, that's some good logic. But that's what they did. But Christ rejected any other course other than to come in. Now, and what does he do? He accepts responsibility. And this is a real interesting thing. While we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Jesus, was, he had no sin to die for. Death was not a part of his reality. He is life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life exists because I exist. Life comes out of me. I'm not dependent on anything for my life. Everything else is dependent on me for its life. I am life. And yet, being that person, he accepts responsibility for those of us who are under the curse, and he enters in to our suffering, to our shame, and he takes all of that onto him. He owns it as though it is his. The way a godly man is going to love God and love others around him is he is going to enter in and he is going to accept responsibility for the things that God has entrusted to him. That's what he's going to do. He's going to embrace that responsibility. Whether it was put on him fairly or unfairly, it doesn't really matter. Whether he's culpable, doesn't matter. Whether it's his fault, doesn't matter. He's responsible. And this works in a bunch of different ways. So, for example, you are responsible for your own spiritual growth. You're responsible for it. You say, well, I mean, my dad didn't do any of this. I had a bad dad. An abusive dad. I had an absent dad. I had a domineering and controlling mom. 
my first wife, she did these things to me. And as a result of that, now I find myself where I don't feel qualified to do anything and I'm passive, I don't really engage, what can I do? All these things were done to me. That may be true. And you may, may genuinely not be your fault. I didn't choose to have a babysitter use me to explore her sexuality. I didn't choose that. But I am responsible now to know how to possess my body in purity. That is my job. The fact that something happened to me in the past that I was not in charge of because of somebody else's sin does not negate the fact that now I have to own responsibility. I may not even be at fault for some of that. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And that's where it begins, first of all, for us to own the fact that it, i got to own what is mine to own. And certainly, whether you're married, single, no matter what it is, you are responsible for your own relationship with God. You are responsible to grow to the point that you can do what he's called you to do. You are responsible to know the scriptures and be able to apply them to your life. You are responsible. You are responsible to get your heart and your mind into a position, however you have to do it, you have to do that so that you can be in a, in a position where you have a sense of God's presence in your life. You're responsible. Christ accepted responsibility for other people's failures, for other people's sins. And that is what a godly man does. A godly man, the way he's going to love is he is going to absorb into himself the suffering of other people. And the more you're in charge of it, the more you're going to suffer. The more you're willing to serve and take responsibility for, the more you're gifted to take responsibility for, the more God entrusts you, then the more you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to own responsibility for other people's shortcomings. That's how you're going to love them, is by accepting responsibility for them. And then Jesus leads courageously. This thing about dealing with the serpent. Well, Adam was not willing to be courageous and do, to put himself forward, to step in front of Eve, to say, hey, to deal with any threat and danger. She could have said, hey, he came and talked to me. I'm working this out. I got opinions about how this ought to handle. He's like, hey, I love you, but that is my responsibility. I need you to let me handle this. I need to get out front. I'll talk, I want to hear what you have to say, but I got to step forward on this. He leads courageously. That's exactly what Jesus does. He comes. He deals with the serpent that Adam would not deal with. Where Adam failed to pursue Eve to protect the garden and to protect the society that God had entrusted to him, small though it was, to provide direction for that covering, Jesus did for all of that. He came to reclaim all that had been lost in Adam. And here's the thing. This is how we know we're deeply loved. This is how we know. This is where our security comes from. Is it just the right time Christ died for us while we were still sinners? So I, know, I don't have to wonder, can my performance alienate me from God? No. Because Jesus came and dealt with death for me. Because while I was a sinner, Jesus loved me anyway and engaged me. Can I tell you how wearying it is? As a leader, and a lot of you know this because you have them in your community groups, you, you have them in different areas, you, they work for you. 
where you, you have a young person who was not led courageously. Nobody loved them enough to deal with the difficulties in their lives. And so they grew up wondering, I don't know if he really loves me because he ain't really taking care of me. He's not taking a hit. I'm taking this hit. Why didn't he engage this? Why didn't he do anything for me? I feel abandoned. Maybe he doesn't love me. A lot, there's so much insecurity that comes into our lives. That's why it brings so much stability to us once we know that Jesus loves us enough to die for us. That's why we talk about the gospel all the time. It's because how can I know God loved me if this disease comes into my family? How can I know that God loved me if this accident happens to my child? How can I know that God loves me if I find out that my child's got this congenital birth defect where his immune system doesn't work right? And he's never going to be healthy ever again. How can I know that God loves me? How can I trust him? Because while I was a sinner, Jesus owned responsibility for my sin. He stepped into that and he dealt with my enemy and said, come follow me. That creates security in my life. That's what a godly man is doing for those who are entrusted to him. That's what Jesus did for all who are entrusted to him. And then the last thing is he expects God's reward. He does it out of a sense of hope that at the end, he's not going to lose because God is going to take care of him. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. He trusted that the Father was going to make it right. And that's what a godly man is going to be motivated by that. By a trust that the Father is going to make it right. This may go poorly in the short term. This is not going to go well for me. I am going to suffer. But God is going to make it right in the long term. Let me give you just a couple of practical thoughts as you get to the end of it. That's a picture. That's an image. I've got a slide for you that I just want to bring you back to. I want you to draw this in your notes because I want you to work with this as we're going through. It's just a tool. All right? You've seen this before. So when Adam is created, the whole world is his sphere of responsibility. But really, he's put in the garden. So let's just say the garden, all right? I've got some theological opinions about how that was supposed to expand. But let's just say the garden. He's got a wife that is entrusted to him to be his azair, to be the one who comes alongside him and helps him make the world what the world is supposed to do. And then he's got a garden that he's been planted in. That's his sphere of responsibility. For you, what you're going to have to understand increasingly, is what is my primary, my secondary, my tertiary? I just wanted to say tertiary this morning. It's a good word. You don't get to say it very often. All right. You have to rank what are my responsibilities. Because one of the things that I see guys doing all the time, and we're not real honest with ourselves, is that um, we will be ignoring a difficult, I watch it happen all the time. A man will be working on something that's not super important while he's in the parenting stage of establishing authority, and he'll have a little, sorry, hellion child who's like 18 months old who is wearing his wife out. And she's like, baby, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Oh, don't hit mommy. And he's like, I didn't hear that. And he's over like, whatever, connecting their new Apple TV. Or he's doing something else. He's engaged in something over here, which he could say, well, I mean, this is what I was doing. And that was what she was doing. So again, well, in that season of life, what is your responsibility? It's is to establish authority in your home. To even now begin to teach that child that mommy is with me. She's actually not with you. She was a vehicle for you to get on this planet, but she's going to be with me for a long time. 
long after you're gone. That 18-month-old ain't going to get that, but it doesn't hurt to go ahead and start practicing that speech because you will have it dialed in when he is 16 and you have to pin him against the wall and say it, and he understands, oh, my gosh, my dad really means this. You got to practice. And it's also establishing, what, and that will help your wife feel valued, that this little tyrant that is coming to our home. Now, she won't like it. She'd be like, you're being too hard on him. But deep down in her soul, she's going, I mean, my husband loves me, and he is a little bit crazy sometimes. But I don't, I'm not worried about anybody getting to me because he's going to handle it. He's going to protect me. What is my primary responsibility? So you're going to have to get clear. This is going to be a real practical thing that you're going to have to work with as you work your way through it. And then let me give you one more tool that I want you to work with. What I would say is that the common calling for all of us is to accept responsibility, to reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect, live in such a way that I have to expect God's reward. I'm not living for this world's reward. I'm expecting God's reward. I'm willing to do the hard thing now because I believe that the good thing is coming in the future. And I may die, and I may go down here, but I will not stay down because I will rise again, and I will get a life, and I have a king who will reward me because I was trying to live rightly for him. That is our calling. And we all share that in common, and we can all encourage one another in that calling. But then the way that calling works out is going to change as you go through your life. And it's going to change, and it's going to be a little different for each of us according to our individuality. What gifts you have, what gifts you don't have. It's one of my concerns about teaching on parenting now. It's because I realize you have to parent out of your strengths. And so when I'm teaching about parenting, I'm more verbal than 99.6% of you probably, right? So I parent with words. So I'm good in an argument. And in the moment, like, I got a word to say. A lot of men, not. Don't have that. And so that doesn't mean you can't lead. That doesn't mean you can't parent. It means you're going to have to parent a little bit differently. You're going to have to parent out of your strengths, I have weaknesses that I have to manage. You'll have weaknesses you have to manage. I have sins I have to repent of. You'll have sins that you have to repent of. All of those things in God's sovereignty are a part of how he made you and what he's doing with you. And they will color how you live out your calling, how you reject. There's some of you that you've got certain forms of passivity that you have to reject that I don't really have to deal with that much. But then there are some of you that have... um, Gifts and colleagues that I don't have, and you bring them. And that's where, as the body of Christ, we got to help each other in all of this. But you are going to have to grow in your self awareness here to understand all of that. Does that make sense? And you got to do that for you. Nobody can, you can't come say, Hey, I need you to help me understand that. I can't do it. You're going to have to figure that out in community as you serve, as you obey, through trial and error over the course of time. And then here's the last thing is there are certain things that are really important in different seasons of your life. And we're going to talk about this when we get into parenting. And a lot of the struggles that we, are, that we are having, many of us right now, have to do with the fact that we did not live out this calling with wisdom in a previous season of our life. And so now something that needed to get done in an earlier season of our life did not get done. And as a result of that now, we're having to try to do what we have to do now And make up for what we should have done then. Does that make sense? And so there's something. If you don't teach a child, do this, 
happily, immediately, and thoroughly when it comes time for them to manage their homework in middle school, they are not going to do it. If you don't train them to do that, if you can't say do this and they do it with excellence, then when it comes time for you to say, hey, handle this, for example, cut the grass. I don't want to think about it. If I remember that we have grass, you have failed, right? If I know that I've got, look at this, we have this perfect lawn that does not grow but stays green. It's amazing. That's handle this. But if you hadn't taught them when you take your shoes off, you take your shoes and you go put them in the closet. This is how you do this. And they're like, nah, 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 nah. they can't do that happily. They ain't never going to get to handle this. And so some of you, as a parent, you're dealing with do this issues while you're in a handle this season of life. And then God have mercy on the child and on you when it comes time for them to say, what do you think about this? That gets real challenging. Because they're not anchored in reality. Season, not just in parenting, but in our lives, is the same thing. You neglect your marriage for a season. You escape into pornography for a season. You are not now suddenly going to repent and have this great intimate relationship with your wife. You got five to seven years, depending on how much time it took and how absent you were for how long, before you're going to cultivate a really healthy intimacy. And you're going to have to be patient and lay it down and deny yourself and serve God and love your wife and love God and take responsibility. That's what you're going to be doing. And so season becomes a really important piece of how this works out too. But we all can share in this and we can all encourage one another in this. This is just the start. We got five more weeks. We're going to be working through some of this. Matt's going to pick up on some of these things um, in our next session and drive it a little deeper. So if you've got questions that aren't answered, it's okay. We're, we're starting a journey. Hey, let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I want to pray for these men. pray you'd give them uh, grace. I'm thankful for them that here at 6.30 in the morning, um, they're here. And... Um, and wherever they are, gathered in other meetings, on other places and other campuses, they've made a sacrifice, they've made an intentional effort to be where they are, to be engaging with this truth in community with other men. God, I pray that you would help us. And as we begin this journey, I pray that you would lead us and guide us um, into a place where we love you and we love others as men who reflect your image in a decidedly masculine way. Not a caricature put on us by our culture, but as men reflecting your image, the way you created Adam to and he failed, and the way you sent Jesus to restore. God, would you help us do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.